0: Scripture reading for this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We're taking a break from our study of Mark's gospel this morning to look at this passage from Colossians. The letter of Paul to Colossians was written around AD 62. Paul was in Rome. He was under house arrest when he wrote this letter. He wrote it to the church in Colossae. We don't know what was going on that occasioned this letter. It's not entirely clear what problem was going on in that church, uh, but whatever it was, we know from what Paul wrote in this letter was that the answer was a greater vision of Jesus Christ. Something was causing the foundations of their faith to be shaken. They were, they were losing their footing for some reason. They were shifting from the hope of the gospel. We don't know what it was for them, but we know it can be any manner of things for us. I mean, just from a global scale, you know, we we're talking about the pandemic. We're, we're talking about economic uncertainty on a global scale. We're talking about political uncertainty at a global and national scale. But of course, you know, bring it down to our lives personally. Maybe a devastating diagnosis that you've received. It may be a difficult marriage that you're in. It may, it may be a series of closed doors as you look for a job or a grad school. It may be deep loneliness. It may be the death of a friend or a loved one. In all these things, we can find at times our faith shaken. The the foundation seems to be unsure. Our hope begins to waver. And, And what Paul tells us from this passage that we need is a greater vision of Jesus Christ, of his glory, of his preeminence over all things, of the reality of his resurrection, that our hope of the gospel might not waver. It's the reminder we get from this passage. It's, an, it's a reminder that it is more than appropriate to uh, receive on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, three things we're going to see this morning in the time we have remaining. First, that Christ is preeminent in all things. Christ is preeminent in all things. That'll be our first point. Secondly, That by his cross, he reconciled rebels to God. By his cross, he reconciled rebels to God. And then third, that his resurrection confirms that the Christian story is true. That's where we're headed. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We are so thankful for this reminder from your word, Lord, even though we don't know exactly what was going on in Colossae, we know that this letter was preserved for us down to this day because there are people even now, perhaps here this morning with us, for whom our faith is shaken, for whom our hope feels unsure. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would give us the one thing above all things that we need, a clear vision of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask this in his name. Amen. So first, Christ is preeminent in all things. This is what Paul tells us in this passage. I want to look at that word preeminent as we see it here. I want to look at the word firstborn as we see it in this passage as well. So take a look at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then jump down to verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, let's wrestle for just a minute with what that word firstborn means in the Bible. It's important that we recognize that that word does not mean first in order or first in a sequence. It's not referring to chronology. It's referring to... Hierarchy. It's referring to preeminence. It's referring to rule, to being in the highest place. Now, we know this in part because in Psalm 89, Psalm 89 is talking about King David. In Psalm 89, uh, it says that God will make David the firstborn. You know, your, your Bible history and the story of David, you know that David was not the firstborn. He was, he was the run of the litter, if you will, he was the last son. And, you know, he was brought in in the end and actually was the one who was declared to be king. But the, but the point was, he wasn't born first. The point was, he would have the rights of the firstborn son. He would be the one who would be considered preeminent of highest worth, receive the greatest share of the inheritance. He is the firstborn, Paul tells us, Jesus is, of all creation. He has the rights and the privileges of the firstborn son. This is a human analogy to help us get at a spiritual truth concerning Jesus. He's the firstborn. He's also preeminent. Take a look at verse 18. Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent simply means occupying the highest place. Christ occupies. The highest place. He occupies the highest place in all creation. So let's go back through and look at this. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is the agent of creation. Everything in heaven and earth, spiritual authority and everything on this earth created By Jesus. He's the agent of creation. He is the goal of creation. Look at verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. The whole point of everything that is, is ultimately the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He's the agent of creation. He's the goal of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus occupies the highest place in all creation. Paul also tells us he occupies the highest place in new creation. So take a look at verse 18 again. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead, again, doesn't mean He's first in the order of those who have been resurrected. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead before Jesus. There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead before Jesus. This is referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one risen from the dead. He is the king. He is the ruler over the new creation that was ushered in with his resurrection from the dead. He is the head of the church, the new creation of God. The new people of God, the outpost of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. What does that mean for us? Well, if you're here this morning or if you're listening and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want to remind you that this passage and the Bible as a whole does not simply present Jesus as a good teacher or as a good man or as a leader of a new religion someone whom perhaps is teaching you could add to you know the a la carte approach to other spiritualities and have a basically a good meaningful life the bible present jesus christ to us in that way so if you're going to reckon with christianity you need to reckon with the person of christ if you're going to make a decision about whether christianity is true or not that question and its answer must center on the person of Jesus Christ in order for evaluation of Christianity to have been made. But if you are a Christian this morning, I want you to use your imagination with me for just a second. I want to imagine that you're in the room with Paul when he's dictating this letter. Now again, he was under house arrest. He couldn't leave. People could come to him. Paul didn't usually write his letters at all. We don't know why, but he often would dictate his letters. Someone else would write them down. So he's in, this, he's in this room in Rome under house arrest. Somebody is writing Colossians for him as he dictates it. And he begins with, you know, the standard greeting. This is who I am and, and et cetera. And then he goes on and he pr- talks about prayer, the way he's praying for them. And he actually goes on and prays for them. And then here in verse 15, he kind of just goes off into song. Some scholars think that verse 15 through 20 is actually a, an older Christian hymn. Kind of predates Paul and his uh, dictation of Colossians. Others would say, no, I mean, you know, we, maybe, but really, Paul's just breaking out into song. You know, whatever's going on, Paul's heart is leaping within him. Why? Because for Paul, this wasn't just about doctrine, it was. But it wasn't just about that. It wasn't just about the fact that Christ is preeminent over creation. It wasn't just about the fact that Christ is occupying the highest place over new creation. This was because, for Paul, Christ occupied the highest place in his heart. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, I don't need to ask if Christ occupies the highest place in your heart. I look in the mirror, and I know that far too often he doesn't. I know we all struggle in the same way. What I hope will happen this morning is is the fruit of what has been your journey so far as a Christian. And that is not that you'll live a better life, be a better husband or wife or parent, have greater values and the way in which you live. Be a better neighbor. Those things are all good, but those are all the fruit of this one thing, Christ occupying the highest place in your heart. If you have one thing to work on for the rest of your life, one thing that you can give yourself to in whatever hours or days or weeks or years remain for you, let it be this thing that increasingly, day by day, Christ occupy the highest place in your heart, that he be preeminent in your life and nothing else. Second, by his cross, he has reconciled rebels to God. He's reconciled rebels to God. Paul tells us in this passage that Jesus is both God and man. Now, we, we've seen his uh, as we've, as we've read through this. We've gotten a sense of it already, but but just take a look at some other things that he says. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything that we need to know about God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the fullness of God. Look down at verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You read the Old Testament, and after the temple was built, the glory of God flooded the temple. And what this passage is telling us is that Jesus is the temple. The fullness of God dwells in him. And yet, he bled. He bled. The passage tells us in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 22 says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul doubles up some words there for body. Soma and Sarks. It's just his way of saying his frailness, his humanity, his physical body, this God who is the image of God, this God who is the fullness of God, this God who is before all things, who is preeminent over all things, bled and he died on a cross. To what end? What was the goal? It's the reconciliation of rebels to God. So what we see in verse 21 and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds that it is is a description of what every person is by nature. Until you're ready to acknowledge that you are not ready to receive the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Again, this is not about an add on to your attempt to live a good moral life. This is about acknowledging that apart from Christ, we are without hope because there is this gap between us and God, this chasm that has been created because of our sin. It's a gap that can't be bridged. It's not about moral distance. It's about steadfast opposition, hostile in mind, rebels. That's what we are. By nature, apart from God's grace, invading our lives, that's what we are. What has Christ accomplished? Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That describes what the cross accomplishes. Here's the key, past tense, has accomplished. When you put your hope in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you find, that this reconciling work for you is done. It's it's finished. There's no wondering, what do I need to do in order to get right with God? It's receiving this gift of what God has done in order for you to be right with him. The the whole notion, you you hear it all the time, right? You need to make your peace with God. No! God has made his peace with you through the reconciling blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. All we have to do is open up our hands and receive it by looking to Jesus Christ for salvation. The work of reconciliation is finished. God's wrath has been satisfied. I took that cup on Good Friday, and I held it up, and I said, this is the cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank on the cross, and there's not one drop left in it, so that we could have only The cup of God's mercy, undiluted, full, found in Christ. Nothing is left for you except God's grace. God's grace. Just think about reconciliation for a minute. When you think about somebody being offended, hurt, by someone else, the offender, you don't tend to think that reconciliation begins until the offender approaches the offended and says, I'm sorry. The gospel is that the offended, God, pursues the offender, mankind, and pays the ultimate price out of love In order for the offender to become friend. This is the grace of God. It can only be received. Christ is preeminent in all things. By his cross, he has reconciled rebels to God. And then third, his resurrection confirms that the Christian story is true. Christianity rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the central claim of Christianity that Jesus Christ is God and man. He died on the cross in our place, reconciling us to God by living in his flesh, the wrath that we deserve from God, and then to confirm that everything he said is true in order to intercede now for us until the day of his return. That's the claim. If that's not true, then nothing that's happening right now matters. If that is true, then everything about Christianity matters. And it matters more than anything else. That's why it's crucial that you consider the claims of the resurrection. Every Easter, I like to, to bring up a few, right? I can only have time for one, usually. And I want to I hit one to remind us that the, the reality of the resurrection is historically plausible. That this is an event in history. That we can have confidence happened. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read the first few verses and try to drive this point home. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, same author as Colossians, writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, by which which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is grounding Christianity, grounding the resurrection in history. It happened. In fact, it happened so recently that there are people still alive who were witnesses to the resurrection, which was a crucial element of verifying a claim were there witnesses, then and now. And Paul's saying for people that are still alive who witnessed the resurrection, who saw the resurrected Lord, you can go talk to them if you want. Now, 1 Corinthians was written around the same time as Colossians, around A.D. 60. And Paul is writing to them in 1 Corinthians, reminding them of something that he had taught them previously. So now we're going to work our way back. Remember, Jesus was crucified around A.D. 30, 33, somewhere in there. So here's Paul now in the mid-50s. He's actually taught them the things that he's reminding them here in 1 Corinthians about, You remember what I taught you. I taught you these things, and now I'm reminding you of these things. So let's say A.D., you know, mid-50s, Paul has taught these Christians in Corinth about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then Paul said that he himself had received these things. So he was teaching them things that he himself had been taught. Now, when might that have happened? Well, it probably happened at Paul's conversion. So now we're going back into the the mid-30s, maybe within a year or two, of the actual crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Ananias began to teach Paul about Jesus. And Ananias was teaching things that he himself had been taught. We're, We're going back to the very beginning In other words, this can't be a legend. This can't be something that, you know, the disciples made up somewhere down the road because everyone hoped that it would be true. The fact of the matter is no one expected this to be true. No Jewish person expected that there would be a resurrection of a single individual in the middle of history. They either rejected the idea of resurrection altogether or they expected a general resurrection of the dead at the end of history. There was nothing that predisposed a Jewish person to believe this story. And yet in Acts chapter 2, we read that with the beginning of the church, there was a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. And so you've got to ask well, what's the most plausible explanation for that? It's not wish fulfillment. Nobody. Expected that to be true? Nobody wanted that to be true. They didn't want a spiritual savior. They wanted a political savior. The only and most plausible explanation for the growth of the church and the truth of Christianity is that Christ, in fact, is risen. Christianity rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection happened, and so the story is true. Think of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If he's not risen, those are the words of a narcissist. But because he's risen, they're true. Think of what this text tells us he accomplished. Our reconciliation with God. The resurrection confirms that that's true. Paul, same author of Colossians, says this in Romans 4.25. Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. That's the cross. And raised for our justification. We know that we are declared just in God's sight. Forgiven. Reconciled. Because Christ is risen. And think finally, of what is yet to come. I want you to look back at Colossians 1 with me one last time. And look at verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things. All things in heaven or on earth: peace by the blood of his cross. What that means who remain opposed to Jesus Christ will be silenced. And those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will experience that final fulfillment, that peace that is found in. And the reality of being reconciled to God. And not just people, but all creation. All that was made by and through and for, all that is sustained by Jesus is being made new. The prophecies will come to pass. I think of Isaiah chapter 11, verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Or Isaiah 35, five and six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or in Isaiah... 65, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The resurrection is the beginning of the fulfillment of this truth. I love the way Tim Keller puts it in his book on the resurrection that was just released within the last couple of weeks. Resurrection doesn't bring hope for the future. The resurrection brings hope from the future. The future reality of the kingdom of God has been in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose, the reconciliation of all things began. When he returns, that reconciliation will be complete. That is why, as we grieve, the death of our brother, John, we do not grieve as those without hope, because hope is broken in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and John has entered in to the fullness of that hope. He's happier now (laughs) than we are. Because he is in the unveiled presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The veil remains for us. It will one day be pulled back. In the meantime, we give thanks that John is with Jesus. And we long for the day that we enter into the glorious presence of the risen Lord. Until that day, hold this truth close to your heart. Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. By his blood, he reconciled rebels to God. And by his resurrection, he brings hope, not for the future, but from the future, that our faith might never be shaken. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do... Pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts. Lord, there are many things that distract us and scare us, leave us unsettled and questioning whether there's any meaning at all. And yet we are reminded this morning of the most important fact in all of history, that Christ is risen. Lord Jesus, until the day of your return, would you hold us fast? And we thank you that you have promised that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.